Uh, welcome to the Atlantic Interview. My guest is Mike Solomonoff. He's the greatest restaurateur. Do you pronounce restaurateur? Do you I think so. I think some people say you're like restaurateur. Who says that? I don't know. Not in Philadelphia, they people don't. don't. You're an impresario of restaurants uh, in, in Philadelphia. He's the James Beard Award winner, which means you're the best chef in America. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, not really. You just, just own yeah, it. That's what they say. Yeah. The Art. first time an Israeli has won. Uh, first time an Israeli has won, and I, I've won two um, chef awards. One was Best Chef Mid-Atlantic. Right. And one was uh, Outstanding Chef in America or whatever. And that um, – Wait, I like that. Or, or whatever. whatever. It, was, uh, <laughs> it was Outstanding Chef, which yeah. is, you know, the big like, – That's big the big deal. one. That's the big one. That both of those days fell on Israeli Independence Day, actually, which is awesome. Do you believe in God? Yeah, yeah. I guess, Do you believe I that God was behind that? No, but I love I love the Bashert aspect of it. I love the 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 uh, synchronous for our listeners. I think it's got that synchronistic. This it's is fate. fated to be. It's a little hard to say. Like I think that um, God, when was it? You remember when Bush got all this flack for for people saying that he he thought that God had like put him in that role, right? And you're like, if you believe in some sort of God. It's not that crazy of a thing to to think, right? right? Because you believe that a lot of the things happen that are out of your control that are meant to be. I'm not saying that I believe in that, but just that idea that like, you know, if if you believe in any sort of god or any sort of like order of anything, it's not so unreasonable to think you're in the right place at the right time. I think we've done this for 3 minutes and we're already down some weird rabbit hole, it's pretty man. Pretty trippy. <laughs> so, for people who don't know, Mike Solomonov is the co-owner, creator, chef of Zahav in Philadelphia, which is a dynamite restaurant. You've got Federal Donuts, which you have partners with, Steve Cook, and um, uh, a bunch of other people, which is an awesome donut and chicken shop. You've got Abe Fisher. You've got Goldie's. Goldie. Goldie. Yep. Not, D- yeah. you got Diesengoff, the hummus joint. Yep. What, why are you just in Philadelphia? It's kind of bumming me out a little bit. Well, we actually we have one Diesengoff in Chelsea Market in New York. Oh, right. And then we have a, Chelsea, we have a Diesengoff and a Federal Donuts in Miami. Um, let's start at the beginning. Why do you cook? Why do I cook? Well, I cook because I like it. The reason I cook Israeli food is because when I started, nobody else was doing it. And it is probably Israelis were doing it. They were, but they weren't chefs. They were businessmen that would come to the States and would like open a shawarma shop or like a hummus place or whatever. And it didn't, it was a slice of what they thought Americans wanted to eat. Right. But what we wanted to do or our vision for it was the Israeli experience uh, using ingredients that we have here, but really the, the soul or the spirit um, of the hospitality that you get there and all the different plates and all the vegetables and, and the, acid and the salt and the charcoal and and those and the spices you know and all of that sort of in the this like balagan element this like upheaval of 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 order you know and balagan is a hebrew word that means basically chaos, chaos. disorder yeah yep, exactly which describes a lot of things i think in israel and that region but it can also be it can have a positive connotation the uh you're now leader of a trend. I mean, there are Israeli restaurants in a lot of different places. You and I have a mutual friend in New Orleans, of yep. all places, who yep. does this. Yep. Uh, talk about what Israeli cuisine is. Food that has that is 
been in Palestine, been in Israel, occupied by uh, Ottomans and Jordanians and British, like what, everything from that land. Mm-hmm. Um, all the Druze that um, are spread across the Levant that share cooking traditions with Syria and Lebanon. All of the Bedouins that go from the Sinai all the way up mm-hmm. to the Golan. Um, all of the Palestinians that live there. All of the Jews that have lived there you know, for thousands of years, mostly in Jerusalem, and then all of the other Jews, they're the Olim, all the people that have immigrated mm-hmm. to Israel. So Yemen, That's Turkey. a lot of food. It's a lot of describe. food. It's a lot of history. And all of those immigrants that were Jewish don't just cook food from the countries that they were in, right? Because it's food from Yemen is different than the Jewish food from Yemen. There's laws of kashrut, and there's traditions and holidays. The kosher laws. And, right, exactly, and the Sabbath, Right which is like a specific type of cooking because you can't turn on and off ovens after sundown on a Friday, right? So there's a lot of slow cooked things. There's a lot of like breads that are cooked in the oven overnight or the chamin or the cholent. Basically the birth of cassoulet, right, came from Jewish cooking with this like sort of legume heavy overnight situation. So there's a lot of food. There's a lot of history. There's also a lot of controversy, right? I mean, there are tremendous fights over what constitutes uh, uh, genuine Israeli food. And then there's all sorts of accusations about cultural appropriation. How do you deal with those? I think that you can make an argument anywhere in the world. I mean, the funny and ironic thing about food is that all of it comes from other places, right? And that we... Spaghetti being the operative. Kind of. I was just in Southern California and I'm like, I don't know, how often do you eat a taco and think about like, like America, like stealing Mexican culture? Right. But I think that happens everywhere, right? Like there weren't lemons used in the Middle East until the Moors came from North Africa <laughs> right. bringing lemons. Before that, they used sumac as sour, right? And that sumac is – the Pennsylvania Dutch have been using that for hundreds of years in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, to make pink lemonade. If you want to make a case about a cultural appropriation, you can do that anywhere. What is American cuisine? Because the, 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 the argument is a stand-in for the argument about who was actually indigenous. Right. right. Yeah. Who is indigenous to the yeah, land? Yeah, but what, I don't understand the statute of limitation on cultural appropriation. When does it start or end? But but go to the hummus question because this is what well, – I mean, see, you, you and I have both been in arguments with people where they're saying this is like – this is actual theft. Israeli – it's not theft. I mean, Israel, I, I'm because I am an Israeli citizen, I'm not allowed to go really in a lot of places in the Middle East, right? Right. Um, even on my American passport, it says born in Israel. The hummus that I have had and was introduced to was in Israel. I have a Sephardic – my grandmother was Sephardic, right? Her last name was Toledo, post-Inquisition. They moved to Bulgaria. So they went from Spain to Bulgaria. Spain to Bulgaria. They got conquered like most people in that area by the Ottomans, right? Right. So kanafe, stuffed grape leaves, you know, tahina, like all those things, uh, borekas, like all that stuff was was taught to them or or, um, morphed by the Ottomans. You know, and the the Jews from Bulgaria after the war brought – Borekas and feta and watermelon and feta and kashkaval cheese to to Israel, you know? But it wasn't a pretty story, right? There wasn't like, oh, we're going to come and share our like recipes with you. Well, there are no pretty stories. We're the Ottomans. We're going to freaking overthrow. You know, you're going to like, we're not going to, you're going to work under us. You're going to be under our rule. And this is the way it goes, you know? So I don't really know. Like for me, when people talk about American cuisine, I'm like, well, like I don't, I don't go to any like Navajo restaurants. I don't know what that means. I've never been to a Native American restaurant before, but I would imagine it could probably sting a little bit 
when you say that. And, and, and so I think that you can make a case for cultural appropriation all the time. And like, of course, I, I, I'm, I'm dying for the day. I want one of my friends actually, uh, who's a Palestinian to open, um, a Palestinian restaurant. And I haven't pitched this yet to her. Her name is Reem because she, she just, uh, Palestinian table mm-hmm. is her book. It is like unbelievable. It is so good. I want her to actually open a restaurant, but I don't, you know, I think that there just has to be better representation in general. And I think that if you want to make a case for conflict and if you want to point fingers, by all means, do it with food. But at the end of the day, we all know that food comes from everywhere, right? Yeah. I got in this big argument with a friend of mine um, about the um, eggplant, like carpaccio, that was like very trendly, trendy in Israel in the late 90s. Like, and, and everyone was saying it was cultural appropriation. And I'm like, well, the Iraqi Jews brought the eggplant to Israel. Like they brought sabich, right? And right. Tabi- the Iraqi Jews were expelled from Iraq. They were expelled from Iraq, but Iraqi Jews were in Iraq before Islam like existed, right? right. So I, I don't know, dude, can you claim an eggplant? Can you claim a chickpea? Like, no, none of those This is things. the first time I've ever heard anyone having an argument about eggplant carpaccio, but that's a... Uh, well, which By is the like, way, that's an indication of the insanity of the discourse that we have right. around this. Well, it's literary license, and I think all of it is. I mean, I think the beauty about food is that there are commonalities and it is not conflict. I've never met an Israeli that has been like, uh, we created hummus. They marketed hummus, of course, but like they never created it. And what I find to be ironic, okay, so cucumber tomato salad, what do we call that? Israeli salad. Israeli salad. What do Israelis in Israel call it? Arab salad. I love it. I love it. That's where it should start. That's where the argument should start, you know? Right, right. Well, you mentioned the conflict. Let's talk about the conflict because the conflict has touched you in tragic ways. Yes. Uh, Your trajectory, in a way, in life was uh, altered by a Hezbollah sniper. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tell tell us that that story and and how it changed – what you do and who you are. Uh, well, so th- my younger brother, David, uh, so I, I grew up in the state. We all grew up in the States. We moved back to Israel when I was 15. I stayed for one year and then moved back to America. And my brother stayed and um, did what every kid does. He enlisted after high school and was in infantry uh, unit. And on Yom Kippur 2003, October 6th, he was – uh, patrolling the northern border, like by the good fence, which uh-huh. is, um, uh, with Israel and Lebanon and was killed by, uh, snipers that were, um, Hezbollah snipers in Lebanon that fired into Israel. Right. And that was, you know, I guess one of the most important and tragic days of my life. How old was he and how old were you? I, I was 24. He was 21. And it right. was three days before his release um, from the military. And it, on, for anybody that doesn't know what Yom Kippur is, it's the Day of Atonement where you fast and you atone and the God sort of opens and cl- or closes the book of life, right? So for many ways, I mean, it was awful, but there was like the really dark sort of Bashar aspect of it. Having anything happen like that on Yom Kippur was like really, right. really hard. Uh, and did so- that, Did that make you- um- did that make you more militant in terms of the sides you took in the conflict? You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go and join the military after that. And uh, it was, cr- it was 
crazy. I was for like, your parents, that must have been a very hard thing to hear. It was hard for them, but, you know, upon reflection, I didn't do it because I wanted to do it only to be closer to my brother because I'd missed these years and I wanted any little bit of information or experience. Maybe in a way I wanted to like, you know, and this sounds morbid and I've never really admit this. So, you know, I kind of like wanted to die his death a little bit. I felt really like uh, guilty. Well, right? you've gone to the apple orchard where he was shot. Right? Yeah. You, you've, yeah. You've even staged meals there. We've, we brought people there before. We've taken trips there before so people understand the uh, severity and also this beauty. I mean, it's a beautiful apple orchard. And my brother was a beautiful kid that was peace loving and, and, was patrolling inside of Israel. I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And he was attacked from the outside. Yeah, he was shot by three snipers that were in an olive grove in Lebanon, you know? And I mean, it's just, it's intense. And I think for a lot of people, they don't quite understand what conflict means or what the consequences are. So I wanted to go back and, and, and I wanted to be close to him. I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't, I didn't, I'm sure there was like revenge involved or whatever, but I also think that that now over a decade later, I think that that has got to stop. I don't think that that does anything. I think, but you became more of an ambassador of Israel because of this in a kind of way. Well, I definitely did. I mean, it, I became a lot more like Israeli in my thinking or less American. I mean, it's hard to go over and bury your brother who was just defending a border basically and then come back and be like, I'm going to be a – sous chef, you know, I'm going to go to Italy or France or whatever. So for sort of down the line that, that started this. I mean, this is this way to, uh, to speak for Israel and this kind of diplomacy, I think in, in many ways is, you know, definitely more effective for, than me joining the military and, um, doing it that way. And diplomacy right now in this world needs help, you know, and I think that from a grassroots level, this is the way to do it. We don't need to pick up weapons. We don't need to get in arguments. You simply need to sit down and like cook for people or have people into your home but or your restaurant. Let's, 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 I mean, with all due respect, I mean, I used to cover Hezbollah. I spent a lot of time in Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, the, the guys who killed your brother mm-hmm. are not interested in eating your hummus. The people that support them might be. I'm not talking about shaking hands with Hezbollah. I'm not talking. About any of those things. I'm talking about the people that like, that lives are affected by decisions that are kind of out of our control, mm-hmm. right? Hezbollah is a government, isn't it? Well, it's practically it's a, par- a government. Yeah. It's a party. It's a party in the government. Right. So I'm party. like, I don't know. I mean, whose interest are they, you know, uh, whose interest? I am sort of convinced the older I get, I mean, the people that are sort of in place doing these things that should be for us don't have our best interest in mind, you know? And I think that goes for all sides, every single side. Did I want to go back and pick up a gun and like fight these people that like killed my brother? Yeah, of course. I'm a fucking human being and I was fucking hurt and I had to like bury my 21-year-old brother in the ground, right? right? Of course, of course I wanted to act. But now, do I wish that kind of pain on anybody? Do I want to like see parents bury their kids? No way. It's fucking crazy. It doesn't do anything. And I'm not – I'm also not suggesting that like breaking like pita or challah around a table is going to cause peace in the Middle East. But Jesus, man, look at what 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 are we doing right now to to promote any sort of healthy interactions between any of our countries or nations. It's not effective. 
yeah, of course it it was traumatic and and I was super angry and of course I still am now. Yeah. I mean it's hard, you know, it's hard when you have terrorist organizations that are that are that are voted into power or at least supported. It's crazy. On the other hand, what are you supposed to do when like these organizations are the ones that are providing healthcare, education, and I use that in quote, I mean mm-hmm. I have air quotes right now, and like food and bread and water. I mean people just want to be prosperous. They just want their families to be healthy. They just want a, a home to live in. It's not that much. Right. If you're getting provided that by a terrorist organization, whether I call it that or not, it doesn't really make a difference. That's who you're going to support. Right. This also had a personal dynamic in the sense that uh, it sent you off in a, in a, in a bit of a tailspin. It was yes. not immediate. Um, you were moving through a career already. And uh, in, in, it turns out that you had great talents as in cooking, but you were also you couldn't deal, and you found talent- your way. You found your way to drugs. <laughs> I did. I was a talented actor, and uh, I was a talented um, drug addict. Like I think most active uh, drug addicts, um, the ones that don't end up dying, that end up getting in recovery and talking about it. I mean, you find that like people have sort of lived this double life, which is what I did. Take take us through it a little bit. I mean, did you start using because you couldn't deal with your brother? No, I mean that's sort of a loaded question. I think that you've got the if you have the addictive bug, you sort of have it, you know, and it's just kind of waiting. And I've always, um, you know, it was going to be something. I think it was all. It was already something. I mean, oh, okay. I was already kind of like a. Uh, I already like indulged a lot um, as a kid, and mm-hmm. uh, I got into a little bit of trouble. And that's actually I dropped out of college because I had overdosed on drugs. And um, so there's already in motion. It was, and I stopped. I, I ended up in this bakery in Israel, and that's where I started cooking. And things for a very long period of time looked like they were going very well in my life, which they were. I didn't suspect. I didn't think I was a drug addict. I thought I just did what every other kid did, and I took it a little bit too far. You know. Right. Um, and so it was a number of years. I mean, it was like five or six years without me like using substances regularly or anything like that. I would drink or, you know, I don't think I even smoked pot or anything like that. But after my brother was killed, I went immediately down. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the disease is, um, progressive and sort of diabolical. And so I came back from burying him. And a few weeks later, I was like using crack cocaine. Right. And, but you were also, and this is so interesting, you were also, and also impossible in, in a way to believe, you were also achieving at the same time. This, the is, this was the, the, at the same time you're using and becoming truly addicted, your, your restaurant career is sort of taking off. Yeah. Go into that a little bit. I mean, on the outside, you know, I met my business partner, I met my, uh, ex-wife i met everybody while i was hiding this addiction and we were getting press and people were talking about this it. is so when you had opened uh well, actually steve hired me at marigold kitchen right and that happened and then things were going well and then we ended up opening zahav and i got like married and all these things while hiding this addiction um and the problem it was kind was, of an amazing feat in a way it was i mean i was it was you know burning the candle at both ends is the under statement of the sort of year for this. But uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I was a very good manipulator and I took advantage of people and I took advantage of my brother, actually, in his death. I used his death as this excuse, not just to me lying to myself saying, you know, smoking crack in the car that should have been his, you know, is the way that I cope with these things or I can excuse this behavior. But like eventually, 
I would need ways to like get out of the house or whatever. And it would be like, Oh, I'm depressed. My brother died. And you know, and you don't just, you know, like I'm not going to, I mean, it was obviously the worst thing that has ever happened in my life. Right. David dying was like the worst it continues to be. Um, but not everybody that goes through this decides to like smoke crack and do heroin. Right. Right. So like you can't use somebody's death to like right. behave like this and you can't do it for five years and you can't do it when you've got your wife buying into your bullshit and you're like, you know, taking money from investors and mortgaging your house and in business, you know, my business partner had a child and, and I, we were responsible for like many things, including a bank note, including like staff. And I was out there being like as, as reckless as you possibly could. How did you not die? How did you come back from the abyss? Well, that's a great question because I probably should have a hundred times over and I'm taught through many of the various programs that I'm in that I attend that if I ever decide to relapse, more than likely those things will happen. Like I feel like I've used every out that I could. I mean, there were so many times I got pulled over in this car and all the cop had to do was flash the light down to my lap and I would have been finished. How many nights did I go out and use? Crack pipe? Yeah, pipe, bags, anything. I would have been done. So extremely reckless even. Extremely by- reckless. I used, I drove a car under the influence almost every single day. You know? I didn't hit anybody, thank God. What caused you to stop? My wife at the time and my business partner um, staged an intervention and took me to detox. And and I went to rehab. And it was a long, hard road. You got out. And you're business also somehow survived that period. Oh, uh, dude, because that was in 2008. This I went, is Zahav in Philadelphia. Zahav, Zahav. Right. Okay. I'm, I, we the opened in 2008, the flagship. We, I went to rehab in August. In October, we won Esquire Magazine Best Restaurant, you know, one of 20 best restaurants. We received that award. The next day, like, AIG went under, Wachovia went under. Like, the economy was tanking. I was like, Zahav is not an inexpensive restaurant. People are gonna, people are gonna cut back a little bit on. I just think it was like a poor time to open any small business, (laughs) but a modern Israeli restaurant being run by, you know, the the chef was like twenty days clean or something like that is not a great premise, right? Um, The election with Obama was happening, and everybody was like glued to their TV. Phillies won the World Series, which sounds great if you own a bar with a television in it, not if you're like trying to explain people what Malawach or Shakshuka is, you know? So I remember being like 40 days clean and calling my dad because we were going, I mean, we were going to like shut the lights off, man. We were like slow. We were doing like 15 covers a night. You've been to the restaurant. We were a busy, big restaurant. You know, we were doing like under 20 covers a night. I was like, it's amazing given it. that there's lines now. Right? Now, yeah, yeah. Now, and we're like white knuckling it through recovery. And I remember um, calling my dad to borrow money for, to make payroll. Like, I've never asked my parents for anything ever. Mm-hmm. And like, that was obviously, I was like 40 days clean. And I remember standing outside with Steve and we were like, what do we do? And I called my dad and I'm like, you know, in Israel. And I'm like, I need to borrow $10,000 because. We might have to like use it to make payroll. And so my dad thinking that I was like, you know, I just gotten out of rehab. So I remember being standing with Steve and like he gets a call and it's like my dad calling from Israel to make sure that I'm like, okay. You right. know, it was like a very dark time. We didn't get paid. We weren't taking paychecks and, and we were about to shut the light off. And then we get this glowing review from Philadelphia magazine calling us like number one restaurant in Philly, which was like absolutely not the case, but thank God we got that. (laughs) We got everybody in and 
you know, and, and we started to, to accept our role as ambassadors and to not, we weren't just replicating things that we got in Israel. We were this sort of conduit or this continuation of Israeli cuisine happening globally. Right. People talk about modern. So what, you almost felt like a responsibility at that point. Well, I think to that get we, this right and not. Well, we had, to, we had, we had no choice but to get it right. Well, you and, had a business trip, but you're also suggesting that you had this kind of larger purpose of introducing a new cuisine from this. I mean, this cuisine to me is more than, than a restaurant concept. Right. Right. And this is a way for me to, to, to do my, to, to do my duty, right. To, to represent Israel. This is, this is your homage. army. This is my army. And this is, I feel like in a way, um, I don't know, man. You have hipsters and you have food writers talking about shakshuka and talking about malawak and talking about Yemenite. You got Questlove talking about your food, right? We got all those things, and there's a way to do this. And 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 we open so many doors. And and I think we have people that normally uh, know about Israel from watching it on like the news and make judgments about the country ten thousand miles yeah. away. And like they don't do that now. The success has been sort of a constant uh, road upward from mm-hmm. from that point um and i'm wondering also why the highs of that didn't send you back toward using you know that's a great question because a lot of people think that when you're doing well it's somehow easier but um yeah you know people are like you need thrills you need thrills and like good things and bad things are all triggers right, right for uh recovery and like honestly i don't obsess thank god um and it's been nine years now since I've like ever picked up. And I still have to be really disciplined about these things. And I have to be really honest about how I'm feeling and what's happening in the day and, and what my vulnerabilities are and reaching out to people that like have the same condition that I do. And, and without that, it doesn't work, you know, because you can justify or rationalize your way into a drink or a drug whenever you want. You know, I had to bury my mom. So David was killed on Yom Kippur. My mom died uh, two years ago on Rosh Hashanah. Right, which hmm. would have been perfect had my recovery not been strong. I would have done the same thing. It would have been biblically, Shakespeareanly tragic, right. you know. And instead of right. running away or using her or manipulating her or this thing, I flew to Israel and held her hand while she died. I mean, it was a very, it was a triumphant thing for recovery. I think so. I have right. to be cognizant of those things. And people also say, "Oh, now that you've got two kids, it must be so easy to stay clean." And I'm like, "Have you ever been in a fucking car with two, like a six and a three year old?" If there's not one thing to make you want to use drugs or, or like drink, it's like a traffic jam with them, you know? <laughs> so I think that the good and the bad, you're absolutely right. right. I could believe the things that people constantly write or or, or, or let right. my head get big and get arrogant and then right. I'd go right back out. I want to get to the James Beard Award uh, in a minute, but I don't know. It's sort of hard to transition from heroin and crack and Israel and your mother's death on Rosh Hashanah to donuts. But yeah. here we go. Yeah. Um, talk about your food empire. And I have a very specific question about it, actually, because I always wonder, whenever I walk by a Wolfgang Puck in the airport, I think to myself, Wolfgang Puck used to have this rarefied reputation, and now he's just selling sandwich, overpriced sandwiches in the airport. Yeah. You, you see this now more and more. You, you, you've entered the impresario yes. realm. Yes. Um, some people do it well. Jose Andres in Washington is a good example. Some people just... Are in it for the money, and they and they and they they kind of sell out. And so, h- how are you managing this next phase of your career? You've got a bunch of different restaurants. You have got Federal Donuts. You're writing books. You wrote a an award winning cookbook of Israeli food. You can do anything now, and you could find any level of investment. I think. How do you 
as an impresario, manage this? Well, I mean, you know, I don't, I, Steve and I, with everything except for federal, are equal in everything that we do. I mean, Steve wrote the Zahab book. Can he cook? Together. Yeah, he's a great cook. Yeah, are you he's a better like cook? Best. You're a better cook. I don't know, dude. I think I enjoy I'll it ask more. Him. Ask him. <laughs> yeah, I'm ask him. He's a great, great cook. He is like, you know, he was a finance guy and then became a chef. Um, and then became a restaurateur. But like with the Zahav book, he had never written anything professionally ever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'll write the chapter header. I'll, you know, and then he wrote a chapter and then he wrote a book and then it got like two James Beard awards, including like book of the year. Right. right. So when you have a business partner and a best friend and a brother like Stephen Cook, you can kind of do a lot of things for us. It is very important to us that we maintain culture and integrity and don't, you know. You get my Wolfgang Puck point. I do. And I got to say, at one point early on, nobody wanted to like answer the phone whenever we called. Nobody, no broker wanted to show us spaces. Nobody wanted to like lend us money or, or, and now very quickly after people want, there's a lot of opportunities and sort of. Picking the right ones is 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 the most important thing to What's us. What's the most tempting thing that you've been offered that you're just not doing? I mean, a lot of people wanted us to like open Zahavs across the country, and we don't want to do that. You know, L.A., New York, all those things, and all of it sounds great, and making money sounds great, but I don't, I don't know. I like cooking at Zahav. I like when people come to Philadelphia to have dinner. I love the fact that we have one of them. I like working there. I I enjoy... You I actually have, work the bread station. I do. And like, you know, this last year I've been traveling a lot and, you know, it seems really cool and glamorous when you start, but you know, it's like not. It's it's work. I'd rather be sleeping in my own bed. I'd rather be behind the bread. Like I'd be making lafas at Zahav. I, that's the reason I do what I do. I love it. I love being an employee at Zahav. It's like my favorite thing to do. So... As long as we can do that, I mean, we have five partners that are all incredibly talented at Federal Donuts, and that is the way that Federal Donuts can grow. Diesinghoff, you know, we have a few in different loca- in different markets, and those are working out well. But like, it's nice to it's nice to 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 constantly reinvent yourself with the concepts that you have, right? And to grow, we could license, I guess, we could do those things. We might, I don't know, but I think that. The way that we grow is with the people that that grow with us. Right. Maybe it wasn't a surprise to you. Um, it wasn't a surprise to me. But this year, uh, James Beard, best chef in America. Essentially, that's the you won the you won the best actor award. You won the the, the Pulitzer, the Nobel Prize for for chefs in America. Um, you surprised? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was amazing. It was incredible. Are you surprised because it's you, or are you surprised because it's Israeli food? Well, I think both. I was surprised because I can't believe that that I've never, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. Um, that's a, a huge. That's a huge thing, and it's nice when your life's work is um, recognized. Obviously, and it's nice to be called, even though I'm like definitely not the best chef in America. I, it's nice to be called that. It's a win for me. It's a win for Israel. We always make fun of like awards and everybody does, you know, but then, then when you, you win lose, one, who is the best chef in America actually? And seriously, who do you actually kind of admire, worship even? Dude, there's so many amazing people. That's like sort of a cop out answer. I can't, I know. Who's the best? Who do you like? What restaurant do you like going to the most that's not owned by you? I think that um, like Kelly Fields at Willie Jean in, in New Orleans is like unbelievably good. 
like unbelievably good. I would go to her restaurant. All I want to do is like, I'm going to sleep there and wake up. I think that Dan Barber is amazing. I think that what he stands for is great. Daniel Hum, obviously at EMP is amazing. Um, let's see. David Kinch is amazing. Chris Costow, amazing. Ashley Christensen, amazing. Tony Montuano, amazing. Anna Sortoon, amazing. Look for a guy who didn't have any names 10 seconds ago. You just, well, I got a lot of one. names. Yeah. You're saying one singular. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. is, well, no, you, you know, yeah. I don't know. What's your favorite? Oh, um, Missy Robbins. Oh my God. My favorite is actually, I'm, I mean, I guess maybe there's journalistic distance that I'm not uh, doing here, but you know, uh, I love your restaurant. I love Zahab. I love you. Um, and I love you too. This is this 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 now is gone really sideways as a yeah. podcast. I this think is the best podcast ever, uh, or the worst. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I love your I love your restaurant. If I can just, but you know, it's it's evocative. I lived in Israel for a long time. It it and 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 what's interesting about your restaurant, the the flagship restaurant, Zahav, is that it took something that I didn't know existed, which is to say, high Israeli cuisine, and it, it made it real. Yeah. Like you did something unusual because this is not French, it's not Italian, it's not Chinese. This is Israeli, yes. um, and so that's that's quite unusual. And so uh, the the things you make there evoke memories that I have, but they taste better than the memories, if you know what I mean. That to me is the award. Okay, what I want is for people to come in and close their eyes and eat and say, this has taken me back to a Shabbat dinner. This has taken me back to like schnitzel standing up while waiting at a bus stop. This has taken me back to a family meal or a moment, but like it wasn't delivered to me like this. You know what the, the, the interesting thing to me is, and maybe this is my own sort of Jewish parochial response. When I go to your restaurant and I see non-Jews in there, I mean, people I assume are non-Jews and there's a lot of people, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different yeah. races. I'm always sort of surprised. Like when, when I saw that Questlove named your restaurant one of his favorite restaurants, I was like, huh, go figure. But I, I, I didn't, it didn't strike me that that Israeli food would be something that anybody would want who didn't have some kind of uh, family or background connection to the place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and, and that may be something unusual that you've done. I think bringing it into the mainstream is, you know, is my mission. Hopefully it's happening and hopefully it, it will uh, lead to something that is positive. And like, I, I'm not cynical enough to think that, um, you know, that it's like going to like create peace in the Middle East. But I, I think that we need to start doing something and hopefully you can help. Mike Solomonov, thanks a lot. Thanks, bro. I spoke with Mike Solomonov at the 6th and I Historic Synagogue in Washington, D.C. The Atlantic interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe and rate us. You don't like it? Fine. Tell me who you'd like to hear from next. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. I'll speak to you next week.